0: Uh, turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. As you turn to Luke chapter 6, I just echo some things that Kevin mentioned earlier. Uh, I'd encourage you to prayerfully consider some of the ministry opportunities that are listed for you there in our, our worship folder, especially the, the uh, ministry opportunities regarding our, our, our children. Our church has been blessed with an abundance of, of children. We believe that that is God's gracious provision the life of our church and so I'd I encourage you to think about how may God be calling you to be faithful to this this resource of children that he is has given our, our church and so look through all the various ministry opportunities it's been neat uh, talked with Debbie uh, Joe Hodges who helps lead our children's ministry this past week how God has been uh, leading people already to help meet some of these needs that existed and some people have been called to, to different ministries within our children's ministry and so we we are confident, we're confident that God is going to equip us to do the ministries that he desires us to do. And I would ask that you would pray that God would show you how he might be calling you to use uh, your abilities that he's given you for his greater glory and your joy. also encourage you, if you're not involved in a, a Sunday school class this month, Kevin is teaching a a kind of an intro Sunday School class uh, behind the theater here on Sunday mornings the mo- rest of the month of August. encourage you to, to consider that as well. Well, we are in Luke chapter 6, and we've been looking in Luke chapter 6 at Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. And we've been in a, sex- a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6 that deals with judging others. And so we're going to continue looking at that this morning, uh, beginning in verses 37 through verses 42, focusing specifically on verses 39 through 42 this morning in in our sermon. So let's please stand in honor of God as we read his word. Luke chapter 6, I'll begin in verse 37, reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus says, Judge not. And you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Then we come to verse 39, where we'll be looking at this morning. He also told them a parable Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. You may be seated. Let's pray. And Father, we do recognize this morning that we have a, a great need for your grace in this area of, of judging others. Help us as we see the sin of others to not be blinded to the sin that's in our own life. And I pray that this, this time... And this morning, as we turn our attention more closely to your text here in Luke chapter 6, that you would uh, convict us through the work of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who have been following the news this past week, you're probably aware that on Wednesday, Chief U.S. District Judge Vaughn Walker ruled that California's Proposition 8 was unconstitutional. Proposition 8 was passed by California voters in 2008, and it defined marriage as a union between one man and one woman, and it made same-sex unions unconstitutional, same-sex marriages unconstitutional, unconstitutional under California's state constitution. Well, Judge Walker overturned that proposition, that amendment to California's Constitution, and this is what he wrote in his ruling, and I encourage you to to listen to what he he wrote here. He said, Proposition 8 fails to advance any rational basis in singling out gay men and lesbians for denial of a marriage license. Indeed, he says, the evidence shows Proposition 8 does nothing more than enshrine in the California Constitution the notion that opposite-sex couples are superior to same-sex couples. And because California has no interest in discriminating against gay men and lesbians, and because Proposition 8 prevents California from fulfilling its constitutional obligation to provide marriages on an equal basis, the court concludes that Proposition 8 is unconstitutional. That's a very groundbreaking decision and we don't know what the full implications of that ruling are going to be yet or where this is all going to end up, but, but notice what Judge Walker has said. He believes that it is immoral, in a sense, to tell one group, one set of, of couples, one type of couples, that that type of union is superior to, to another type of union, another form of union. That to say opposite-sex couples are superior to same-gender couples, to to say that they're superior from the state, is a wrong thing to do, is discriminatory. The problem that I believe that Judge Walker has is, is this. At some point, at some point, he's going to draw the line and discriminate against some group out there. At some point, he recognizes that the state should refuse to grant marriage licenses to, to some group out there, and yet they should still continue to grant marriage licenses to this other group. The question that I would have for Judge Walker is, on what basis are you going to determine where to draw that line? On what basis are you deciding, what, what's your, your moral compass here in deciding what couples should be included, and what couples should be included or excluded. Now, it should not surprise you to find out what I believe about marriage. I believe that marriage is God's common grace, that God has bestowed the common grace of marriage upon people in all different cultures and all different societies throughout human history. And God, as he's granted this this common grace, is the, the author of marriage, the one who stands sovereign over marriage, and he is the one who is best able to determine and has complete authority to determine how marriages should be instituted and how one should conduct oneself once one finds oneself in a marriage. So, for example, when a couple becomes married, God has instituted what a couple is supposed to do within that marriage. If a person is in a marriage and says, Well, I believe that, that adultery is okay for, for me to do in this marriage, they have the option to, to exercise that belief that they have, but that's contrary to what God has designed marriage to be, and they're going to suffer as a result of their decision to pr- pursue something that's at variance with what God says marriage is to be. The same that is true for an individual is true for a society. As a society rejects God's common grace of marriage, they're going to suffer as a result. God has designed marriage to be a picture of the union between Christ and his church. A husband, as he is faithful to his wife and loves and sacrifices to her, for her, serves as a picture of Christ and his love and sacrifice for the church. A wife, as she loves and submits To her husband is a picture of the church. As a society, as a culture, rejects God's plan for marriage, they suffer as a result. And make no mistake, whatever happens long term in our country in regards to this issue, there's little doubt in my my mind that the children in this church are going to grow up in a culture that's much different than the culture that some of us grew up in. They're going to be the worse off spiritually because they lived in a culture that rejected God's revelation concerning marriage, and they're going to suffer because they don't have that clear picture that marriage is supposed to be of the relationship between Christ and his church. But as bad as I think that is, as much as I pray for the children in our church and other people in our church as we, we lose in our culture that, that uh, common grace that God has given us of marriage, as much as I lament that, and as much as, I, as that concerns me, let me suggest to you this morning that a far greater danger potentially exists for the children of this church a far greater danger exists for the other saints in the church and that danger potentially that exists for the spiritual health of this church is you and me the far greater danger for our children is not what happens outside the walls figuratively speaking, of this church. A far greater potential danger for the spiritual health of the children of this church and other saints in this church is our own lack of passion for holiness. Let's just take as a further illustration the idea of of sexual immorality. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 5? He said, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Why? For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or who is impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Within a church, there is supposed to be a passion for holiness. And as a church, as individuals lose that passion for personal holiness, the people within the church are in grave danger, in far greater danger than a world that acts the way that the world is supposed to act. Last week, as we turned to Jesus' words here on judging, we looked at this idea externally. As I encounter the sins of other people, how should I respond? And we saw, as we look at the other people, when we see their sin, first of all, we need to be very careful not to be self-righteous and condemning as we look at the things that they're doing. Simultaneously, we want, as we see them, as we respond to them externally, we want to, to just lavish grace and mercy upon them because we also desire grace and mercy, But not only this, not only are we supposed to respond that way externally toward them when we see sin and encounter sin in their lives, when we see sin and encounter it in their lives, this passage that we're looking at this morning says, we need to turn a microscope inward. Not only do I have an obligation not to self-righteously judge others, I need to look at my own heart and say, how am I failing God in this area? Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, let's say that there's a person in the church who's, who's gossiping, and they have the, the terrible nerve to say things about, about you. And you hear them saying these terrible things about you, and you say, I am so concerned for the unity of Christ's church. How could they say terrible things about me? I'm so offended for God, and you're very upset about this. The right response is first of all, to lavish grace and mercy and not self-righteously judge this person, The simultaneously what needs to happen, according to the text we're going to look at this morning, is we need to look inward. How am I also harming the unity of Christ's church? It's not just this gossip over here that undermines the unity of Christ's church. I am often guilty of failing to promote unity in the body of Christ, God, change my heart, begin here. As I encounter my precious child who is angry, I first need to not approach them with a condemning, self-righteous attitude. How in the world could a child of mine have an angry heart. I don't understand it, God. It's foreign to me. Lord, save this poor wicked child. Not only, do I not, need to, not only do I need to not do that, I need to turn the microscope inward and say, God, how have I responded in an angry way to situations in my life and trained my child in how to be angry? God, please change my heart first. As I see the person who's committed adultery, not only do I need to be careful not to, to judge them and have this self-righteous attitude, how dare they break their marriage vows, but I need to turn the microscope inward. God, how have I failed to sacrificially love and care for my spouse the way that you've called me to? And what we're going to see in the text is that a person who is unwilling to turn that microscope inward, to look in their own heart, and their own life, a person who's unwilling to do that is not only unable to help other people deal with their sin, they're going to harm them. Not only are we unlikely to help other people, we are certain to harm them as we fail to turn our gaze inward and deal with our own sin. That's what I believe the central point of the text that we're looking at this morning is. Until we're convinced of the depth of our own failures and sin, not only are we unable to help, we're certain to harm others. Imagine a, a doctor, a doctor who's very skilled at, at curing people with cancer and, and treating them. And this doctor, as, as she uh, goes in for a routine blood work, finds that, that she herself has cancer. And now, the answer for this doctor is not to to stop treating other people, but as she treats other people, as she continues in these these treatments that she leads others through, she also goes through those same treatments with them. She becomes a patient in addition to a doctor. The same is true for you and I as, as the church. We are still called to promoting holiness corporately. We don't turn a blind eye to sin in others' lives, but as we Engage others and encourage them to greater godliness. We recognize that we have a need for growth and personal holiness as well. That's what I believe we're going to see as we look at this text this morning. Kind of two instructions I have uh, for you from this text is are are these. Uh, The first thing that we need to do as we turn the eye on ourselves is first of all, we need to recognize that. We are a danger to others. Recognize that you're a danger to others. We're going to see this in verses 39 and 40. And then secondly, we need to repent of our own sins. Repent of your own sins. We see that in verses 41 through 42. Uh, Let's first look at this idea that we need to recognize that we are a danger to others. Recognize that you're a danger to others. Look at verse 39. It says, he also told them a parable. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And you look at the text, and you say, okay, the first thing here that we're talking about is we need to recognize that we're a danger to others. Uh, Okay, but Daniel, I understand how maybe I'm not the most helpful person in another person's spiritual life, but harmful to them? A a danger to them? I I don't know. A a greater danger than than, than, uh, overturning proposition eight? Surely not. Well, look at Jesus's words here. A blind person, leading a blind person, is going to cause both of them to fall into a pit. Uh, Here in Jesus' culture, this first century Judaism, there wasn't the Americans with Disabilities Act. A blind person was reliant upon other people to to help them and to to, uh, help them find their their sustenance and to be able to, to guide them around. It would be extremely foolish of a blind person to find another blind person to lead them around. One person who was writing on this this text had in his mind's eye a vision of kind of a, a desert place. And there's a blind man kind of wandering around this, this wilderness. And another blind man comes alongside and begins to, to guide him. And now together, both of them are, are wandering around this, this desolate place. And they're unlikely to, to find any sort of provisions, any sort of water, any sort of food, and as they continue to wander around this wilderness, they inch closer and closer to a great precipice and are, in fact, in danger of falling into it. A blind person leading a blind person is very dangerous. Similarly, a person who has failed to deal with their own sin leading around another person who's in sin is a dangerous combination. Listen to how scripture also sometimes describes a pit. Isaiah 24 is an interesting text to look at. Isaiah 24, we see that in scripture, a pit is often used to describe God's judgment. This is what we read in Isaiah 24, verse 17 and following. It says, terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He's talking about God's judgment. He says in verse 18, He who, li- who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly blo- broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It, it sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls and will not rise again. The last part of verse 21, he's talking about the kings of the earth. Verse 22, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. In scripture, when it talks about a pit, it's often talking about God's judgment. What Jesus is saying here, as a blind person, a person who's spiritually blind, leads another person who's spiritually blind. The likelihood isn't Of this blind person leading this other blind person to repentance, the danger is that they will both fall into God's judgment. The second picture that Jesus gives here is similar to that. He says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Now in this, again, this first century Judaism culture, there wasn't a a big library that a person could go to and find out uh, how to parent or how to handle your finances they didn't have this great book table like we have here at, at five points a person in fact the majority of the people were were illiterate and so they couldn't go to these scrolls and read these things they would find a person who was a teacher and they would attach themselves to that person and they would try to emulate their conduct the goal for a disciple was to be as much like his teacher as possible A disciple's desire was to emulate his teacher in every way. And what Jesus is saying here is as you emulate your teacher, the likelihood of you exceeding the righteousness of your teacher is very slim. What's going to happen is once you're fully trained, that is, once you become fully like your teacher, you're going to be like your teacher. Now, what's the danger? The danger is if you are a person who has sin in your life and are yet setting yourself up as a person to whom others should look or even existing within the community of faith the danger is that people are going to become like you it's inevitable it's inevitable that there are going to be people in the church who look to you for spiritual guidance Think about it. There are probably people in the church that aren't even aware of it that that you look up to. Maybe there's a a mom who seems to really have her act together. I mean, she doesn't, but it looks like she really has her act together. You're like, man, if I could just have things together like like that, that mom, I will have fully arrived. Or maybe you're a you look at a, a successful business in the church and you're like, man, if I could just be like that successful business guy, I would feel like I really arrived. Or maybe there's someone in the church with a great fashion sense and you're like, man, if I could just dress like them, emulate that. Not likely, but uh, if you could just dress like them, then I will arrive. Okay, there are people in the church don't even know it that you're emulating. The same is true for you. There are people in the church who are looking to you. There are people in your life who are looking to you to learn how to live as God would have you live. That's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to have people trying to emulate you. And yet it's inevitable. Your children, your coworkers, other believers are emulating you. I was reading a story uh, this past week Counselor was talking about two men that he knew. He said, uh, "One of these uh, men that he knew, as a young boy, had gone into his father's room to play with something in one of his drawers, and he pulled out one of his father's drawers. And he's kind of playing around, and he felt something underneath the, dr- the the drawer, and he pulled out a magazine. It was a pornographic magazine, and that moment began a decades-long struggle." that this man had with with pornography as he emulated the path that his father had taken. told the story of another man. Same uh, scenario, somewhat. He walks into his father's room. His parents aren't around. He's kind of playing around in the bed. The mattress moves a little bit, and so he feels underneath the mattress and pulls out a magazine. But this magazine is called Holiness in the Lord, (laughs) and thus began a decades-long pursuit of righteousness and holiness. A disciple will not be above his teacher, but when fully trained, will be like his teacher. Think about the various groups that exist within this church and, and people that, that look up to them, and, and the danger that exists is we become distracted by the sins of others and fail to turn the microscope in on ourselves. For example, let's say that you're an elder or pastor in the church, a leader in the church, recognized. And and you look out, and and you you see that the the people in the church are like, man, I I just wish the people in the church had had a greater passion for ministry. Why can't they get more excited about fill-in-the-blank? Why can't they do more of fill-in-the-blank? And as a leader in the church becomes so passionate about seeing the faults of the people in the congregation, they fail to recognize what's taking place in their own heart, as they're focused on the failings of other people and all the things they need to do in order to, to keep people in, in their church, they're missing what Paul told the, the uh, elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 38, where he said that this the church was is Christ's church purchased with his own blood. They're missing what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke with great Exhort with great patience and instruction. A spiritual leader who becomes focused on the faults of others is going to fail to examine how he needs to change. A dad or a mom looks at their children and they see the misbehavior of their children, and their heart aches as they see that these children lack a passion for God, and they become so distracted by looking at the sin in their children's lives that that, that what? They don't recognize how they are failing to model holiness for their children. Deuteronomy 6-7 tells fathers to to teach them diligently. And as a father becomes obsessed with the failings of his children, he fails to, to comprehend and recognize I'm a danger to my children because my passion isn't to teach them diligently. I'm teaching them lazily. They are emulating what they're seeing from me. I'm a danger to my children. If you're a young person, you're in school and you look at the, the, the situation that exists, among your peers, and your heart aches for them, and you see the way that they're living their life, you recognize it's a wrong way to live one's life, then you become harsh and judgmental toward their actions instead of loving, and as you do so, you fail to understand how you're failing to be a young person that's a model of godliness. If you've ever seen the movie Up, Disney Pixar's movie, uh, movie Up, there's a great Set of characters in that that movie. These these dogs, these dogs have been uh, affixed with these collars, right? That allow them to to speak what's in their mind. And I think one of my favorite parts of the movie is when the dogs will be talking and suddenly squirrel. You know, <laughs> just get distracted. Okay, talk talk talk. Squirrel. Okay, that's how we are sometimes. We're supposed to be turning in. We're looking at our sins. Suddenly, oh, someone else's sin. <laughs> we become affixed by it distracted by it and as we fail to deal with the sin that exists in our own life we represent a danger to other people in the church i'll give you a couple applications here first of all i would just encourage you to prayerfully consider who's watching me (laughs) who's watching me and how are they in danger as they follow my life ask yourself that question Who's watching me? And then, secondly, uh, who am I distracted by? What's, what's distracting me? What's the shiny object in my life, or in, uh, what's the shiny object in other people's lives that I'm affixed upon when I need to be turning the attention uh, on to myself? Another question to ask yourself is this How would the church be affected if everyone was pursuing holiness and righteousness like me? What if everyone in the church was like you? Maybe your first response is that would be great. <laughs> But then think about it. How would the church really be? If everyone was as committed to ministry, if everyone was was as committed to giving, if everyone was committed to to personal holiness and righteousness, how healthy would this church be? Important questions, I believe, to ask ourselves. So first of all, recognize that that you're a danger to others. Uh, Secondly, secondly here, uh, repent of your own sin. Secondly, repent of your own sin. Look at verse forty-one. Verse forty-one, Jesus presents kind of a, a very funny picture here. He says, "Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the the log that is in your own?" So, uh, here, here's the picture that Jesus is presenting. It's this guy uh, walking down the street, and he's got this big log sticking out of his 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 eye. This this log, this rafter, that he is uh, the word that. Is, is translated here. It means like a, a beam that would be used in, in building a home, a roof of a home. So here's this guy walking down the street. He's got this uh, huge rafter coming out of his eye, and he, and he sees his brother. like, hey, you got a speck in your eye. Okay. Brother, brother, it's a very condescending term he's using here. Hey, brother, uh, I see you have a speck in your eye. Here, let, let me help you here, you know. The brother's ducking the log, like, you know, I'm good, you know. What is, what is Jesus' advice? Jesus' advice is, look, hypocrite, hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This word hypocrite is, is just like the word judging last week. We kind of need to understand what Scripture really taught about judging. We need to understand what Scripture really means when it uses the word hypocrite. Sometimes our, our culture defines a hypocrite as this, a hypocrite we sometimes think is a person who says that something is sin and yet sins themselves. Okay? That's kind of how our culture defines a hypocrite. That's a wrong definition. Some of you are writing it down. Don't write that down. <laughs> a hypocrite, our culture believes, is, look, if you say that someone else is a sinner but you're a sinner, then you're a hypocrite. No, that's not, that's not exactly right. <laughs> Turn your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 6. Look at how Jesus uses this term, hypocrite. Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 2. Well, we'll start in verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy. First example, giving to the needy. Sound no trumpet before you as the Hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites, be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. Verse 16 of Matthew 6. And when you fast, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus talks more about hypocrites. Matthew chapter 23, he's giving the, the woes to the scribes and Pharisees, and he calls them scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. He says, this in verse t- 13 but woe to you scribes and pharisees and hypocrites you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in verse 23 he says woe to you this is a Matthew 23 23 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. A a hypocrite here is is focused on the tiny things and yet neglects the the greater things. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. Clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, this is a crucial passage for understanding the nature of hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy And lawlessness. That is the biblical definition of hypocrisy. A hypocrite is a person who externally acts one way and their acting is at odds with what is true of them internally. And so a hypocrite is self-righteous. A hypocrite looks out at, at other people who are involved in sin and has a condemning attitude toward them failing to acknowledge that they also are people who are in need of God's grace because in and of themselves they're unable to achieve God's righteousness. A hypocrite hypocrite presents a very nice, whitewashed front, but on the inside they're full of death and decay and disease and dead people's bodies. Not a very pleasant picture. So a hypocrite is not a person who says, well, this is sin, and yet sins. A person who's a hypocrite says, you're a sinner, and I'm not. It's dangerous. We do it, and we need to repent of it. A hypocrite is one who has different standards for others than for themselves, A hypocrite is one who condemns sin in others, but when confronted with sin in their their own life, refuses to deal with it. For example, last year or so, there was a a governor who was uh, caught in an affair. And he had been a person who had had uh, supposedly a very high standard of morality, and yet as he's confronted with this adulterous affair, instead of acknowledging, yes, this is sin, this is wrong, this is wicked, and if he had done that, it would not have been hypocritical. <laughs> Instead, he says, oh, I've, I've found my one true love. And continues, continued in a, in a very uh, adulterous, at least a mentally relationship. Sportscaster in Dallas. Whenever I was, lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there was a, a sportscaster down there who was just, I mean, he was like this... Uh, it was firecracker. If you got on his wrong, bad side, it was not a very pleasant experience. And he would talk about how terrible these professional athletes were who made so much money and yet were abusing drugs. And this entire time, he was abusing drugs came out. So what's, what's the hypocrisy there? He's condemning others, having a harsh, judgmental attitude toward them while practicing the same thing himself. Beloved, We are a danger to others. We are a danger to ourselves. We are a danger to the children. We are a danger to the older saints. We are a danger to one another as we practice hypocrisy and fail to repent. I want you to turn. Actually, just one one moment. Let me me just uh, read a quote from J.C. Ryle. Uh, J.C. Ryle, as he's talking about repentance and what it looks like, he says, okay, Daniel, I understand I need to repent of my sins. I've got this big log in my eye. Now what do I do? Okay. A couple suggestions for you. Uh, one, just think about this log in your eye and, and how to remove it. Uh, stop the, the obsession with other people's sins. Stop the, the focus on others. Turn your attention inward. Ask God to show you in his word how the things that you're doing grieve him. And then as, as God reveals those things in your life, ask God for true biblical repentance. We've talked about that frequently. Let me read you some, some words from J.C. Ryle about repentance. J.C. Ryle says this, A true repentance begins, number one, with knowledge of sin. That is, you've, you've gone to God's word, you've, and you've understood what sin is, and now you have a knowledge that you're a sinner, that's where repentance begins. A true repentance, true repentance that's from God, works a sorrow for sin. So you see that hypocrisy in your own life, you recognize it as sin, and then there's a sorrow. You feel a, a deep grief as you consider that sin. It's a good test, right? So you look at the sin of others and the sin of your own life, which bothers you more? <laughs> it works a true sorrow for sin, secondly. Then, thirdly, True repentance causes a confession of sin. You come before God and you say, God, this is the sin that is in my life. It grieves you, and God, it grieves me as well. I confess that what this is is sin. Continues by breaking off from sin. God, this is what I've been doing. It grieves you, Now I'm going to break off from it. I'm, I'm turning from it, and it, it yields a deep hatred of sin, finally. True repentance yields a deep hatred of sin. Psalm 119 128, the psalmist says, I I hate every false way within myself. Let me me continue reading what J.C. Ryle says. Uh, He says this, Just as you cannot have the sun without light, or ice without cold, or fire without heat, or water without moisture, so long you will never find true faith without true repentance. And you will never find true repentance without lively faith. The two things will always go side by side. That's where this whole thing begins as we turn our attention inward. As we encounter the sins of others, first we have to be careful not to judge them, but secondly we have to turn inward and say, I am in need of Jesus Christ. I place my faith and my trust in him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. And then, as we do that, <laughs> to turn from our sin, only then can we encounter and deal with the sin of others. I want us to, to close by looking at the book of Habakkuk for a few minutes. Uh, turn to the book of Habakkuk. It's back there somewhere. towards, towards um, It's in the uh, minor, prophets, minor Prophets section. It's right after the book of Nahum, right before the book of Zephaniah. Habakkuk, maybe your pages there are nice and crisp and new. Habakkuk is a great book. I'd encourage you to read through it this week as you think about turning from sin and about how to look upon the sins of others versus your own sin. Very interesting what happens here. Habakkuk begins, Habakkuk begins in chapter 1, and Habakkuk is really torqued off. He's upset at the sin of the people of Israel. Verse 2 O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see sin, and iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? He talks about destruction, and violence. He says, Look, the people, he's ministering here to the people of Judah before they're they're taken over by the Babylonians. He says, Look, God, the people of Judah are bad people. Deal with this. He's right. He's right. Okay? And then God answers Habakkuk. Habakkuk, I got some good news for you. Verse 5. Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Hey, Habakkuk. I'm gonna deal with your sin. I'm bringing the Babylonians, and Habakkuk goes, <laughs> "Right, look, that's what he says. He says this in verse 12. Uh, are you not from everlasting, you know, Lord, my God, my Holy One? We're not gonna die. You're not gonna bring the Babylonians. I mean, sure, we're bad, but the Babylonians, God, those dudes are really bad." see what he's doing instead of internalizing focusing on his own sin and rejoicing that God is going to bring him through difficult times and the people through difficult times it's like squirrel Babylonians you're kidding me those guys are really bad look at what God says look at Habakkuk says that verse 2 verse uh, chapter 2 verse 1 I'm going to take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will and what I will answer concerning my complaint that is God I've got you in a corner here and this is what God says God says no it's going to happen verse 3 chapter 2 for still the vision awaits its appointed time it hastens to the end it will not lie if it seems slow wait for it it will surely come It will not delay, and here, I believe, is the central verse of Habakkuk, the key verse to understand Habakkuk, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The arrogant, proud person sees the sin of others and doesn't believe that God's going to deal with their own sin. But the righteous person, the person who receives righteousness from God, lives by faith in God. At the very end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk understands what God is saying, and he welcomes God's judgment. Verse 17 of Habakkuk 3, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the 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 produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, all this judgment of God comes. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. How do we handle sin that we see in other people's lives. Last week we saw it begins by not having a harsh judgmental attitude toward them, and it means extending grace and lavishing mercy on them. Today, this morning, what we see God saying in Jesus's words here is we turn the attention on ourselves, and we ask God to do what is necessary to break us, to crush us, cause us to repent and turn from our sins so that we do not serve as a stumbling block for others. And so that as a a corporate group, we can practice righteousness and holiness. God's judgment is coming. God's judgment, in fact, according to Romans chapter 1, it's already here. Romans 1 tells us that Part of God's judgment is allowing a nation to pursue the things that it desires to pursue. God's judgment is already here upon our nation, right? God's judgment is already here upon our culture. What our culture needs is a church that's passionate about God, that is full of people whose hearts have been transformed by the grace of God, by placing their faith in Jesus Christ, and have a passion for personal righteousness first and encouraging others to escape the pit the judgment secondarily may god give us the grace to be gracious towards others let's pray father we thank you for your work in our lives and you've given us grace that we don't deserve protect us from this blinding hypocrisy This hypocrisy that refuses to see our own sin and instead focuses on the sin of others. Lord, give us your grace and your mercy. We pray that you'd lavish it upon us, not for our own glory, but for your glory as we are a people who are called by your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.